Welcome to Radio Survivor in our sesquicentennial episode. He did it. <laughs> yeah, my congratulations is, on that. My name is Paul Reesmendel, and uh, joining me across uh, the room here is Eric Klein. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein, and I will not be attempting to celebrate our 150th episode with uh, any multisyllabic words. Not and, at all. And joining us from... San Francisco, California, via Skype, is Matthew Lassar. Greetings. Great to be here. Uh, we're really pleased to have Matthew here. Matthew is a co-founder of Radiosurvivor.com. And Matthew, you're also a lecturer in history at the University of California at Santa Cruz and the author of many great tomes about radio, including Radio 2.0. And you'll have to remind me of the Pacifica Radio is the name of your first book, right? That's it's just Pacifica, Pacifica Radio. Radio, the rise of an alternative network, followed by um, a second volume, which is about the first volume was about the Pacifica network during the fifties and sixties, and the forties, and the then on um, uneasy listening Pacifica Radio Civil War is about Pacifica from um, the nineteen seventies through. I guess, around 2004 or so. And those are the definitive histories of what is essentially the very first listener-sponsored radio uh, network. It starts off with one station founded in 1948, 1949, and it proceeds to grow into a network and then is... um, uh, it's still there. It's still there. Yeah, let's 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 just put it that way. And (laughs) then it's still there. (laughs) Pacifica Radio. It's still it's there. It's still there. I, I got my start, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Eric Klein here. Uh, first, first handful of jobs uh, making radio was uh, with the Pacifica Radio Network in one way or another. And, and now I no longer work there. And uh, Matthew is uh, our resident hybrid highbrow writing an uh, occasional feature for Radio Survivor. Uh, Matthew, can you describe this notion of hybrid highbrow? What does that mean? Well, hybrid highbrow is a term that I invented to describe KPFA and Berkeley's earliest music format, which was basically a mix of classical music and folk music and jazz. And uh, it borrowed, I think, conceptually from Matthew Arnold's definition of culture, which is the best that has been thought and, and said in the world. Um, that was it was sort of his his meta elitist uh, um, vision of culture. And from that, I, I needed a I felt like I needed a, a catchphrase to describe what KPFA was doing um, in the 1940s and the 1950s. And so I uh, I came up with the term hybrid highbrow. The, the people who started KPFA were kind of they were snobs. I think it's safe to say that they were snobs. They didn't like popular music. They didn't approve of popular music. And they but they also thought that, uh, you know, so-called good music uh, needed to be um, presented in a, in a broader and more complicated um, manner. And so, you know, looking at what they did, I came up with the term um, hy- hybrid highbrow. Huh. And I, um, I really like the idea for a variety of reasons that we can talk about. And I've tried in my voluminous non-existent free time to keep up with a podcast, which is on the Radio Survivor podcast, as you know, called Hybrid Highbrow, in which I try to explore the the interrelationship between jazz and classical music and um, jazz and and other kinds of music and classical music and other kinds of music and how um, they borrow and and, you know, and 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 partner with each other yeah. for more than time to time essentially like jazz musicians and classical composers uh may very well be listening to one another despite the fact that on on the radio generally speaking you'd never hear those uh composers uh, side by side and i yes that's exactly right and i tried to you know in my podcasts to turn that hybrid highbrow idea into a format if you want to use the word format in the in the good sense of the term um, we could talk about the way format has played itself out in radio in a less good sense of, of the term um, soon, and I think we will. But I've tried to show, you know, do, do, do shows in which, for example, you know, we see how how jazz musicians have played so much Bella Bartok. You know, there are so many different jazz musicians who love Bella Bartok and play his music and turn his music into jazz um, compositions. And so 
doing things like that, I'm trying to create a uh, I'm trying to create spaces in in radio where all this stuff is is, is right is 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 enmeshed and in, intertwined in each other. You know, there's a lot of college radio stations where there's jazz radio and there's classical radio. You know, they got jazz shows and they got classical shows. But what you don't really hear very often are shows in which jazz and classical and all kinds of other learned musics, as I would call them, get um, played together. And so that's sort of what I what I try to do with my hybrid highbrow idea. And I have a little column on Radio Survivor called Hybrid Highbrow in which I basically look at, you know, this you know, this sharing idea and how it manifests itself in different kinds of musicians and composers and things like that. And I also look at radio stations, which are doing interesting, adventurous things like um, the second inversion radio station up north near where you are and WQXR's Q2 radio station or whatever it's called now. I think they changed the name at this point. And these are uh, online stations, aren't they? I mean, Q2, it's, I think it's on HD radio in yeah, New York. Yeah, it's, it's on HD radio, but of course, you you know, most, I think I'm, I'm guessing that most people listen to it online. I certainly listen to it online. I don't listen to it on an HD radio receiver. Right. You know, I think it's interesting, this notion of format, because as a radio listener, I think most folks perceive format and they understand it in fairly strict terms. You know, across the radio dial, you have a station that you turn to for classic rock. So you can reliably know you're going to hear Led Zeppelin sometime in the next couple of hours. Journey. You have a station you know plays contemporary hit radio, plays, you know, the, whatever the Billboard Hot 100 is, more or less, or Hot 40, depending on the station. You have a station you know now that you can tune in for for what's at the top of the country charts. Now we have uh, an emergent format called Classic Country, right, which was more likely to play things that are 25 years old, similar to Classic Rock. You know, you have a, maybe you have a hard rock station in your, uh, in your market known as Active Rock in the Industry. Then you have the Mix station or the jack station the we play what we want to play which is sort of hits from the decades which, when yeah. you when you are alive <laughs> exactly you know and so it, it's more mixed up it'll be more variety than contemporary hit radio and but maybe not really as much as you'd find on your average college or community station and and then you have a format that that the radio industry calls eclectic because they don't know what else to call it. And that's sort of what is on most college or community radio stations. Because right. you may have a show that does classical. You may have a show that does country. You may have a show that does folk. You may have a show that, that, that covers lots of different genres. But the station itself is not identified by a single genre. And, you know, there's a few kind of edge formats left out there. Uh, and these are, these are formats that you've written about, Matthew. I mean, there's still jazz stations, stations that play principally jazz. There are still uh, classical oh, radio jazz, stations. Right? They, that play, play. they play Latin jazz or the other jazz. <laughs> well, yeah, they play jazz. Uh, you know, however you want to construct the format, that's, a, you know, we, we may get into that. You know, and there's classical, and then there's, I think, maybe a, a, still holding on at the edges of commercial radio, because it's really not a non-commercial format, is smooth jazz radio, which... Uh, Came on the scene in the 80s and is all but completely dissipated now in uh, in the 20 teens. And, and Matthew, of course, you, you're a particular fan of, of classical radio. And I noticed you, you've really done a lot of following of, of classical radio and that, you know, there's a, a particular instantiation of it. I mean, there's classical music and I think people sort of intuitively understand what classical music is, whether it's Bella Bartok or whether it's Beethoven. You know, European so, composers for symphonies and yeah, principally, I think it's what people at least think string of. musicians. Right, you know, and they have maybe have some sense that there's some contemporary composers going going on as well. But, you know, classical radio, Matthew, it seems to me, from reading what you've written, is often a little more constrained than that. There's a, there's a tighter definition, whether, um, whether it's, you know, something someone's written down or whether it's just in effect. Am I, am I getting that right, Matthew, that the classical radio does not necessarily represent classical music as a whole? Well, we, this gets us up back to the idea of formatting. And of course, format, the idea of format radio has a history and it, it, and you know, literally Producer, radio producers in the 1980s started using the term format to describe 
you know, the way radio stations were constructed, especially music radio stations were constructed in the 1980s. As you know, back in the 1970s and the 1960s, a whole bunch of um, people, um, you know, expressing the spirit of the time invented this thing that was called freeform radio. And that, you know, manifested itself at WBAI in New York City, which was a specific station in KSAN in the East Bay of Northern California and other radio stations. And that was that was a that was a reaction to the very rigid top 40 kind of um, radio music radio that um, that emerged in the 1950s and was very, very popular at the time. And it was all and it also benefited from the fact that it was easier um, to get an F, get an FM station. Um, back in the 60s and the 1970s. And, and then that's because there was, there was less competition. Uh, the penetration of FM receivers in the general population was lower. So there was just less demand to get an FM license. And then and they, and freeform radio producers basically made FM extremely popular as a result of that. And then, of course, corporate America took notice. And they came in to a lot of these radio stations that had been freeform radio stations. And they created this thing that was called Format. And, you know, when we think of format in terms of, you know, right, you know, creating a letterhead or creating a website, the idea of format is, is that it's a very specific look with a specific font and colors and things like that. But that's not so much what format is in radio. What format is in radio historically is it's a limitation. It's it's not about what you can play. It's it's more often than not about what you can't play. Hmm. It was a, you know, it was a constricting of, you know, top you know uh, you know classic rock and all these different um formats were limited what you could play they didn't you know right. it wasn't about it wasn't about you know creating more it was about creating less and creating a more um predictable sound that could be uh monet- whose market could be more easily monetized and of course lots of freeform radio producers hated this there are people by the way who defend it um one is a scholar named Eric Weisbard, who wrote a very good book called Top 40 Democracy, which um, influenced which influenced me. And what he says is, is that what it allowed to happen in, in the United States of America is, is that the, the top 40 formats of the 1960s and the 1970s and even the 1980s created these multiple mainstreams hmm. in which it was possible to have all kinds of different kind of cultural, musical mainstreams across the United States, um, sometimes in relationship with each other and sometimes in competition to each other. But it created um, it, it, you know, it, 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 it created a system for a more diverse America to emerge in the 19, especially, I think, in the 1970s. And there's a lot of there's a lot of writing on. Um, 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 about this and about, you know, and defending the cultures that emerged during the format era, particularly disco and making the argument that that these form that these formatted radio stations weren't all bad. And a lot of them were really good, but they definitely there's no question about it. They definitely created systems in which the point was to limit what could be played and to con- and and to basically um uh create schedules around which this l- this limited list of of musics could be played this also happened in classical music and classical music and i th- you know everyone is you know it's it's become a cliche to complain about this but i'm going to sort of go through the standard complaints many classical radio stations in the united states starting in the 1980s and the 1990s especially after the telecommunications act of 1996 when a lot of cl- commercial classical radio stations sold their licenses for enormous amount of money because they could ca- basically um cash in the surviving basically became Easy listening classical music radio stations to to a large extent. In fact, some of them, one of them, the one in, um, around here even had a um, a logo. I think the logo was the slogan was "Everybody remain calm." Oh, um, and the idea was is that you played a lot of classical music that was calming, um, reassuring. You will, you you basically like the Procrustean bed. You basically chopped classical music, the classical music timeline. So it starts with Vivaldi and all that strange early music with you know crumb horns and bells and little things, you know, you know, and and all those Islamic um, um, influences gets 
gets cropped out and then you slice it off mostly after um after the second world war you know with with a few exceptions aaron copeland and a couple of things basically you slice it off after the second world war and also you you play you don't play vocal music this is one of the most interesting things about the uh the ease or smooth classical you could even call it if you like um format which has emerged in our time which is that classical which is that very rarely do you hear vocal music recently i turned on um, a classical music station around here and i actually heard some vocal music and i went wow um that's shocking Hmm. because you know you expect not to hear vocal music and unfortunately because of the because of the years and years and years of of taking vocal music out of um, the classical music format, you have entire audiences which are in no of classical music, entire li- listening bases of classical music radio stations who are actually annoyed when they hear um when they hear voc- when they hear vocal music. I remember years ago working for a record station, which a guy came in was on it with, and had a lot of classical music, and you mean a record store? Uh, I'm sorry, a record store. Yes. Thank you. A record story. And this guy came in and he wanted Gregorian chants. And I showed him the record bin for Gregorian chants. He looked at all the records. He said, that's not what I want. I said, what do you want? He said, I want Gregorian chants, but without the vocals, just the orchestral part. And um, I, <laughs> it's like know, getting I, a Bobby McFerrin record without all that singing. Yeah, without it's, it's Yeah, but Bob, yeah, exactly. Um, and actually – on the radio, I recently heard a, a record that is exactly that. Huh. Um, and so you, so what you get in, what you get in, what you've gotten. So it's in the Montavani strings do Gregorian chants. I mean, you know, it's it's sort of it's like. Well, no. It, to be fair to it, it's more like a serious classical, okay. you know, orchestra doing Gregorian chants. But the the point is, is that for some reason or other, vocal music came to be understood as huh. as sort of interrupting of this smooth. Um, you know, mood altering, uh, you know, format for classical music. Which, and of course, that wasn't what classical music was created for, right? To, to you know, to keep you calm. Yeah, I mean, sounds like Beethoven, sounds like easy Beethoven. listening classical would be like background music for shopping or working. And you know, a lot of classical composers of the 19th century, of course, wrote music not to keep you calm, but to fire you up, you know, Chopin's revolutionary etude, Wagner's ring cycle. You know, these things were were supposed to, you know, fire you up, fire audiences um, up. But in a sense, class the, 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 the classical format of our time has really sort of um, uh, filtered all of that out in a, vari- in a variety of ways. And it's it's kind of a it's kind of a desperate uh, man, move on the part of many classical radio stations, and I'm sympathetic up to a point um, with it. Um, the reality is is that classical classical radio used to be a big thing. Now most classical radio stations enjoy the very last um, um, notch on the um, Nielsen format list. You know they're all the way at the bottom at this point, and I think that they're just trying to hold on. Some radio stations have um, very creatively, most notably WQXR and a radio station up north um, whose name I've, I'm embarrassed to say I've forgotten, um, have created their own little HD streaming um, stations which show, which play avant-garde and interesting, you know, experimental classical music. Q2, as it used to be called, a WQXR. Second inversion is another um, um, version of that. And that's really great. And I listen to those I listen to those kind of things a lot. I listen to second inversion and I really enjoy it. Um, but most classical radio stations are still trying to hold on to this very limited, constricted version um, of classical music. It's interesting to me that some of these stripped down, streamed down formats don't survive. I was you know, rummaging around on the Internet looking for things to write about. And suddenly I looked at this article and realized that smooth jazz had died. I didn't realize that smooth jazz had died, that basically um, around the time that um, Arbitron invented its por- portable people meter, around that point, smooth jazz radio sta- stations went out of fashion um, around um, the United States of America. And there's an interesting – the last 10 years? Is that what we're yes, talking about? Yes, it was about 10 years ago. And there's an interesting conspiracy theory around that. 
and it has to do with the portable people meter. Yeah. And the argument is is that the portable people meter, the way it works is is that you know the radio stations encode themselves. They have this little encoding chip, and the people meter listens to what you're you know you you hold it on. You have a little Peter people meter application on your body, and you. It listens to what you're playing. Unfortunately, lots of people played smooth jazz at a very low level. It's not loud enough. Not loud enough. So the result was is that smooth jazz radio stations suddenly got incredibly bad Arbitron, now Nielsen ratings. And the result was is that it went out of existence. Other people argue, and this is also all played out on radiodiscussions.com, that great discussion list, that basically smooth jazz was just, you know, people just got tired of it. It, I mean, I remember when it was ubiquitous. Yeah. And perhaps some of you are aware, you may be aware of the fact that in China, for a very long time, I don't know what it's like now, but Kenny G's song Going Home was the show, was the song that thousands of stores across China would play just as they were closing down. So you heard, so <laughs> They're when, chasing so, away their uh, right. so patrons So when Kenny you heard G. that, you know, da, 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 you knew that you had to get out of the store in the next five minutes. Huh. You know, you know, they... <laughs> did Kenny G get paid for this from um, the... You know, did he get royalties? Yeah. Well, you should ask Donald Trump that. Yes. You know, Trump well, you know, uh, so you're listening to Radio Survivor. My name is Paul Reismandel. With us on the line from San Francisco is Matthew Lassar. Uh, with me here in Portland, Hello. Oregon, is Eric Klein. We're I'm dying talking. to know more about the beginnings, the middle, and the very end of smooth jazz. It's and, like and such a such a bright flaming turd. That like <laughs> you know, I have to tell I have to tell you um, that there was a time when I really liked smooth jazz. Um, I, and I really liked the sort of wow unpopular uh, yeah, I, opinion expressed you know, on Radio I, Survivor. I, I just liked smooth jazz. I would listen to there were smooth jazz radio stations, and there some of them, especially in the Bay Area, were pretty creative about it. They played a lot of interesting. That's yeah, funny. I remember listening to uh, CD one hundred one point nine, which was the smooth jazz station in New York. This, when I, I, lived in I that feel area. like we need to say that Matthew Lassar also uh, loves punk rock. I think I just have to put that <laughs> into this feed so that people realize who's saying well, they I love mean, smooth I think, jazz. I think. You know the the sort of hating on smooth jazz is in way elevator music. Well, but that's how you perceive it, yeah. right? It's the perception of it, which I think, to, per Matthew's definition of formats being something in which you 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 restrict what gets played, right? I think what happened in the evolution of this music is that it, is that slowly the edges got sanded off, so where. There was smooth jazz kind of grew out of jazz fusion, which right. itself is the, the the melding of rock and jazz. I mean, yeah, Miles Davis, bitches brew. That's right. that's not smooth. But but as the as the decade of seventies went on, right, you, you had you know many more artists, also you know jazz artists making money that they never made before in their lives right. because they would have crossover pop hits. Um, right. You know, I mean, uh. you, 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 to some extent, you have to kind of do, 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 like a George do, do, Benson, do, 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 do. right? You know, as they would meld with disco, but there would still be a lot of jazz in that music, right? So maybe the beats would be a bit more in a disco beat or a rock beat, but it'd be a lot more jazz in it. But it just got boringer and, time, and boringer. If, well, it, I think this is in Matthew, maybe you can correct me. Over time, you know, what happens is then if you're making smooth jazz records, you want to make them for smooth jazz rick radio. That's how people will know about you. Right. And yes. you look at the features, like what, what, what's a hit what sells you know and as you went on through like the 80s into the 90s a this. lot of the the sort of rock or disco beat got replaced by sort of a, uh often what sounded much more like a drum machine or kind of a, a, a more uh, electronic light dance beat you know yeah. something that sounded more like Chardet than yes. uh, than sounded like a weather report or uh yeah <laughs> or return uh, to forever you know i'm calling this think piece sympathy for kenny g <laughs> right right you know Oh, exactly, and I think that that you know that's how radio uh, by 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 essentially creating a format by creating a genre of music that arguably didn't exist without there being a radio station to play it. I mean, uh, Matthew, what do you think of that contention I'm making? That smooth jazz would not have been thought of as a genre had there not been uh, a network of stations and a chart reflecting that to play this new subgenre. Absolutely, Absolutely. you could not. I cannot imagine. A single smooth jazz record being played in isolation from 
four or five smooth jazz records being played, um, you know, in a row. And then an announcer coming on and then some commercials and then more smooth jazz. <laughs> and you're listening to that over the course of an, of an hour or two hours or your commuting time or just putting it in the background while you're working. I mean, that's what it Napping. was, you know, <laughs> so that doesn't what, wake you, know, you up from your nap. That, that that's what you know that's what it was for and and of course it ha- you know it was you know the, the these musicians you know proceeded to write things that would be you know part of that experience so i agree with you that you know you get really it's really hard to imagine you know any single smooth jazz record just sort of existing on its own when, and without when that this, background when and does without this a start market. is this start in the 80s this is the, you know, this is the eighties. Yeah. This is what, this is the, this is what the, I mean, smooth jazz was definitely a creation of the format era. Yeah. Never for the uh, life of me did I think I would care for one instance about the uh, birth, life, and death of smooth jazz. But this is fun, you know. But the other thing that was fun about smooth jazz was that occasionally they did classical on um, crossover right. smooth jazz things that were fun. Like you know, a lot of Bach stuff got done in smooth jazz, right. and I always kind of enjoyed that. And then, of course, you had lots of Christmas yeah, music, which some of it, you know, sure. uh, comes Christmas. out of the classical tradition right, as well. Matthew, uh, I, would, I can't wait to hear your edition of the Hybrid Highbrow podcast covering uh, smooth jazz, why I should care. <laughs> yeah, why I should care about smooth jazz. I mean, I think, I you know, it's not like I, mi- you know, it's not like I miss smooth jazz. Sure. Right. I don't I don't get up in the morning and say, you know, what an outrage it is that smooth jazz, you know. Well, but there are um, online uh, stations still. There are, there are lots of online smooth jazz um, stations so that if you really, you know, want to listen to smooth jazz, um, you can um, um, do that. I want to bring another consideration here uh, in, in, in the format discussion, because um, I do think the commercial non-commercial divide is relevant. And, and smooth jazz, to the best of my knowledge, which I will admit may be spotty, is principally a commercial format. It right. was born of commercial radio and born of finding a particular demographic. Hence the conspiracy theory that uh, the per- portable people meter, which measures ratings, um, you, you know, is to blame or partially to blame for the death of the format. Although I have a kind of a side explanation here that I, maybe I'll go down on tangent. Um, Matthew, you remember when – SoundScan emerged. It was in the early 90s. And SoundScan uh-huh. was when Billboard started to compute the charts based upon actual register sales. Hmm. So prior to then, what would happen is record stores would basically fill out a ledger and send a ledger up to Billboard saying, well, these are the top sales of the week. And, you know, hence uh, it tended to reflect in many ways the records that clerks or owners thought were selling well. Wow, it was perception, not it was data. Correct. Wow. And the difference that happened when SoundScan came in, and there were two major moments. The first was, SoundScan comes in, number one record is NWA second record. Next thing that happens, new Pantera record becomes a number one record. Wow, I just woke up. That's amazing. Right, yeah. so all of a sudden, hardcore gangster rap and like thrash metal, two genres not known at that point to chart well in Billboard, always thought to be sort of fringe genres, get proven to be actually extremely popular and extremely well-selling. But it seemed as though in many ways, even like record store owners were preferring to chart the new Don Henley record. Classic rock. Classic rock or or music, right? And it's that taste-making kind of way of, well, this is the good music. This is the good rock music. So when, uh, you know, the Eagles have a reunion record, well, that's that's good, but uh, this this Pantera thrash metal from, you know, Louisiana and Houston, that can't that can't possibly be good. It can't possibly be charting like that. And and so I think that there's a similar parallel in radio ratings because prior yes, to the, absolutely. the, the, the portable, portable portable people meter dramatically changed the power of individuals to it, it, it eliminated the ability of individuals to show their personal loyalty to certain radio right. stations mm. or other radio stations. If they, if they weren't really listening, it didn't yeah, count. It, it just, right. it was, it, it, it was a, you know, no mercy, no huh. community loyalty. You could not do that anymore. Basically, whatever it was you were really listening to, that's what the portable people meter 
And I um, think there what? are many people who thought of smooth jazz as somewhat more cultured music uh-huh. than like, say, classic rock or country or, or just pop radio and yeah. liked the idea that they were listening to smooth jazz or in their own reflections. Let's give people a lot of credit. In their own reflections, thought as if they were listening to smooth jazz more than they were because it has the word jazz in it. And I've known many people I've met over the years who say, oh, you know, what music do you like to say? I love jazz. I'm like, what do you love? Like, I really like Kenny G. I really like Dave Cos. And I'm like, oh, smooth jazz. And they're like, well, yes, (laughs) but you don't really want to, you know, uh, assail people's tastes in that sort of uh, new meeting kind of thing. But I think people would write that down. And then the portable people meters actually hearing the stations uh, would re- represent, oh, perhaps people's reflections of what they were listening to doesn't quite map on to reality. Um, and I suspect it probably had a role in, in hurting classical radio as well, Matthew, do you think? Um, I think that it hurt classical radio um, a lot because it made it very difficult for people who were using the old, I mean, the old diary system. You know, people could people could exaggerate how much they listen to a certain radio station in order to um, maintain, in order to, in order to keep it, its popularity afloat or, in order or to keep it. Or, even if not for that reason, I think people often report the best version of themselves, right? right? You know, if you, if you, if you, if you send somebody to a little seminar about uh, healthy eating and then afterwards ask them, well, what do you intend to have for lunch? Do you have French fries or a salad? They'll have salad, but maybe an hour later you catch them at McDonald's having French fries and it's not because they're lying. But they're you know they're they're sort of primed yeah, the diary in a particular way and you guys are what you're talking about now just in case listeners are are not familiar these are these are ways in which the business of radio was being measured to uh, to proportion out how much how many people are listening and how much money they get to sell their advertising roughly yeah yeah rad rates are based upon yeah. who's listening the diaries and the people meters and of course as and, and this is important for format as the listening demographics that were reported get more specific and you can say that this station is popular with men 18 to 35 this station is popular with women 25 to 50 uh, that changes the way you can what ads you sell so you know ads that are aimed at men of that age or aimed at women that age right. and uh, they have different values in the marketplace and and so it really did reflect not just in terms of the sheer number of people who are listening what you could charge but who those people are what is the demographic and i and that really informed i think the the development of formats so that you have a station like a, a classic rock or an active rock station is known to attract more men of a certain demographic than your mix station, which tends to attract more women. You're listening to Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein. That's the voice of Paul Reismandel. And we're on the line with Matthew Lassar, who loves radio and is a historian of radio. And we've been talking about uh, formats and radio formats. And what I really want to ask Matthew is, you know, I think a while back you were speaking about how, um, well, we are talking about the history of radio. And I think you started off, I think, in the 1950s, where um, this is, we, we, we've been talking about formats and formats sort of uh, formed around uh, creating um, what radio sounds like when you turn on, especially commercial radio, formats uh, came on the scene in the 60s. Top 40 came on in the scene in the 50s and the, in the 1960s. And then um, in FM, the format uh, uh, the format concept emerged in the 1970s and the 1980s. We, but before that, we did have a generation of radio. What did it sound like before formats came along? Well, it wasn't until after the Second World War that radio stations became much more reliant upon records. Um, in the 1930s, and the 1920s, radio stations uh, played a lot more live music. They were much more oriented towards live music. In addition, um, musicians objected to records being played on the radio. And there were a couple of really important lawsuits during the Second World War that resolved that. It wasn't really until the 19, late until the mid-19th and, and late 1940s that Records that the radio stations that played lots and lots and lots of records, particularly radio stations in New York City, um, started thriving. And one of the reasons they started thriving was because of a series of copyright lawsuits that basically said they could do that. Hmm. Um, so in the 1930s and the 1920s, you didn't 
hear records being played on the radio like you like you did um, after the um, the the Second World War. There was much more of an emphasis towards live music and live and live music shows that were produced by the two um, NBC networks. Um, 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 uh, the NBC, the NBC networks were, were eventually broken up in the late 1940s. So that's the really big difference between radio before and after the Second World War. The record revolution really changed everything, uh, particularly after you got these much more um, powerful formats, 33 RPM um, and 45 RPM, which emerged in the uh, late so formats, formats of records, whereas formats previously of, records were yeah. 78 RPM. You could only have a few minutes per side with the emergence of a 45 record or 33 record. Uh, you could have, you know, multiple, you know, 10, 20 minutes aside, multiple songs, longer pieces, as well as a higher fidelity. And it was at that point that DJs became, uh, per, you know, developed an enormous amount of control and power in the post-war over, period yeah. over over the record industry. Yes, in the in the post-war period, and of course that famously played um, played itself out in the payola scandals um, of the night of the nineteen fifties, um, which you know really sort of rocked the United States of America on you know on a cult on a cultural level. But it really just showed how much radio stations were now in charge of what kind of records would become popular and what kind of records would not become popular. All of that is past. All of that is passed by. Most of my students, you know, they listen to Spotify. Your yeah. college students that you teach yeah, at most, the University of California yeah, they, Santa yeah. Cruz. You know, they you know they listen to Spotify or they listen to YouTube. You know, they, you know, they, and YouTube is now, of course, you know, creating a, a version of YouTube that is basically audio. And yet, um, and yet it's not as if they're immune from something like a chart or even some curation because uh, YouTube or Spotify both present you with what's hot, what's new, what's popular. And some of these things are curated. So, yes. Some of these things are algorithmic and the curated places that is definitely uh, more like getting a record on the top forty radio. It you know which which even if if there was not direct payola in the period after the after the fifties, uh, there's still a lot of lobbying. Uh, you know, surreptitious gifts uh, in the seventies, uh, surreptitious bags of white powder in the mid inside of records given to program directors. Uh, I don't want to accuse anyone at Spotify of receiving such gifts, but there's still a lot it'd of make lobbying. It make a good HBO uh, series to see this uh, behind the scenes at Spotify. Matthew, I'm wondering then, so we've, it, you've just painted a picture where radio has a beginning, middle and an ending and that we're in the ending right now that since formats aren't working and, and, and the young people, well, why are do you getting, say they aren't working? Well, that's I just that's what I think I heard, or, I, I, or that I, they've come to a that they've come to a sort of sunset. Well, I think the argument uh, that is being made, or at least the observation that's being made, is that there are some formats that are sunsetting, but there are formats that are emergent. So what? I, I'm just curious if if the if the youth are getting their music information from these uh, streaming radio services, these online radio services, what is terrestrial radio still here for? Well, for my students, what terrestrial is still around for is news, news and information. Uh, when I, you know, when I, when I, when I, I ask my students to raise their hands and I say to you, what are you listening to? How many of you listen to, you know, AM, FM radio? And some students raise their hands and I say, where do you listen to it? And overwhelmingly, they listen to it in their car. Very few of them listen to it in their homes. Um, and when I ask what they listen to, they listen overwhelmingly to news and information. Hmm. They listen to national public yeah, radio. NPR. Uh, they listen, they, they, that's probably the most important thing that they listen to on, on the radio. Do they listen At least to like it, a KGO, which is uh, the San Francisco area AM news station, which provides, you know, the news yes, on the and, some and some things like some that. Of, some, of the, some of them listen to KGO, KGO and they listen to that kind of, you know, it's, it, you know, a sort of a, a more, I don't know how, how I would describe Describe it. It's more of an old style, um, right? Um, Edgy commercial news, headlines, news, 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 news delivery. But uh, but traffic. the but the great virtue of KGO is that it's much more local in orientation. Yeah, I mean you know KGO really does do does do local. They they news actually and send human reporters out into the streets recording sound 
to file stories for much the less radio. than they used to. Yeah. Right. Well, and they and they, you know, they go to city halls and they you know, they go they go to public they go to public events, so that's really important. But I think that much more now radio um uh, you know, the people I know, the people I know who listen to radio, they listen to radio for news and information. That's yeah. the good part. That's the, you know, that's the good part of radio. The bad part of, the, of radio is, is that a lot of these, um, a lot of my students, in terms of everything else, they listen to Spotify and YouTube and podcasts. And their, you know, their podcast, you know, the, the, the podcast thing is just like from everywhere. There are so many podcasts now and they just, you know, they're constantly coming to me. And I, one of the things I really appreciate about my students is they come to me and they tell me about all these podcasts and I go and I listen to them. I was listening to the Slow Burn podcast. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but that was sort of the history of Watergate. Really wonderful podcast. And my students are always telling me about these yeah. things and they seem to come they seem to come from everywhere. I mean it's really um um kind of interesting. And I would not be surprised if um uh I mean I haven't followed it but at this point, but I would not be surprised if the trends that I you know that we've seen over the last ten years are continuing, which is that People continue to listen to radio. They continue to listen to AM and FM radio. They continue to continue to listen to it um, um, every week, but they listen to it a lot less every week than they did twenty years ago well, yeah. and thirty and thirty years ago. So it continues to be ubiquitous, but it continues to be you be ubiquitous on a lower level yeah. than it than it than it used to be all the research indicates that people are listening in their cars and the and not listening at home that's decreasing yeah. the so you know including the number of radio receivers in a home continues to decline it's getting closer to just one on average when uh if we go back 20 years it was closer to three or four on average w- and then for uh you know how homes that are are headed by millennials or younger people, it, it gets closer to zero. I wonder if it's time then on Radio Survivor to dole out a little bit of advice or at least a notion of what we think could happen next in a positive way, especially for the kind of radio we care about, this uh, non-commercial community and college well, radio. I, I'm not quite ready to go there, Eric. Yeah. Yeah, because I think there's a couple things to tease out here because we speak of radio monolithically, right? And perhaps it's how people experience it. But I'm not sure that, that, that that's fair, right? And, and, and in fact, I think the, the very notion of format helps to kind of pull apart those threads because there is non-commercial and commercial radio. And, and in non-commercial radio, we often think about only as college or community radio or public radio. But there's also a, a, a very large a Christian and religious radio market, which includes music radio. Right, which includes contemporary Christian music in addition to to things that are more spoken word or they proselytizing. Have they certainly have vocalists, uh, and there is even like there is spiritual music. Many there's Catholic networks that play a lot of classical music uh, that comes out of you know a very long standing tradition of 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 music written for spiritual purposes. So right, you know, and they mix and they mix it in with a kind of classical music ish sounding. Um, Christian music format, right? That are that are sort of more contemporary uh, composers. So there's a lot there, but I, I think the the commercial non commercial divide in terms of format is an important one for us to kind of consider. You know, and 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 classical music is a particularly interesting point because it still seems to hang on a little bit, Matthew, as as a commercial format. That there are stations that have not commercials. so much. Not is, so are much. there any left? Because I know uh, not 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 so much. I think that most commercial classical radio stations, there are hardly any commercial classical okay. radio stations. That, it is it has become oh, it, the extent to which it survives. It survives as a um, listener supported public radio um, format in most places. I recently talked about a radio station, wrote about a radio a classical radio station in Utah where they almost got rid of the classical music format and the community rose up and demanded that they keep it and they kept it, hmm. which almost never happens. I mean, I was, it was like, it was like person bites dog, you know? And, and who um, was the owner of the station? I, I was, I, I, I've forgotten. I'm, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I'm okay. embarrassed, embarrassed to say that I've, I've, I've forgotten, but they, 
that you know they decided to hold on to the classical music format because of the number of people who came forward um and um um i was just because you know we you and i have we've the three of us we followed um the number of radio stations where the format changes and the community rises up and the management basically ignores it um it's very rare that the management is is receptive to it but in this case um they were well, and sort of the decline of classical music as a commercial format to me is interesting because you don't have a lot of actual exemplars. So smooth jazz declined as a, as a commercial format, and as a result, it simply went away, right? Not commercial stations didn't all of a sudden pick up the torch and start, uh, and start uh, you know, non-commercial stations. And I think uh, it looks like it was Brigham Young University, by the way, huh. Matthew, is the station yes, that, that owned. Yes, uh, yes that's right. That that in uh, KBYU and and we must say I mean Brigham Young University is almost a sort of exception. They do invest quite a bit. They have an enormous classical music program as a university. Uh, right. The Mormon Church uh, invests quite a bit of money in classical music. I mean, people have heard of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and that is just one instantiation of of the enormous investment in classical music by the Mormon Church and Brigham Young University. So it may be an outlier, but um, but just going back to my original point of classical music being one that has declined as a commercial format and it always existed as a non-commercial and commercial format. There were non-commercial stations that played classical music and there are commercial stations that played classical music in the New York area. WQXR, which is now a non-commercial station was a commercial station for most of its life. And it is, it was classical music owned by I the remember New York times. Three, I remember when there were three classical music radio stations in the greater New York area. Yeah. And I mean, I, and I remember when you'd get up in the morning and you'd turn on the radio and they'd be playing something really harsh. I mean, it was like something avant-garde and modern and difficult to listen. And they'd be playing it at like 845 in the morning. And I, you know, and I look back on those days and it's like, wow. I mean, that was a really different way of thinking about radio than radio today. Oh, yeah. In the 1980s and 90s is when I heard WQXR and its instantiation as a commercial station. My father was a fan. Uh, so these are the time when I was in high school into college and into my 20s. And sometimes we would commute together and he would want to listen to WQXR in the morning. And it they played um, in the morning at that point, they were playing shorter pieces, but definitely some more complex and interesting things later in the day. All of the ads were read by the host. Oh. So it was commercial, but there's no car advertisements, no yelling and screaming, all host read because the idea was they're trying to keep this very Stentonian, very uh, c- cultured sort of tone that really, in a, in a way, hadn't changed since the 60s. Yes, um, I remember there was a com- commercial classical radio station in San Francisco, and it was uh, it, its most important uh, voice was the actor Scott Beach, mm-hmm. and uh, and he did all the ads with his own voice. Yeah. There were no ads that were, that came prepackaged. It was all him. No O'Reilly. Reading. Yeah, there was no O'Reilly. There was all it was all him reading the ads. And you know it was sort of it was and he was he had a, you know he had a great presence. So you know you if you if I had to listen to an ad, I'd want to listen to an ad by Scott Beach. Sounds a lot like podcasting. Uh, yes, but uh, the um, WQXR eventually was sold by the New York Times to New York Public Radio. Yeah. So who who now operates the station? And you know, I I uh, was not inside that deal, but my understanding is basically the New York Times started to s- no longer see much profit in keeping this station alive, but I mean to the credit of the New York Times uh was interested in it retaining its public it's, uh, well it wasn't public radio it was commercial radio right. but retaining its classical format yeah interesting that i would make that uh, yeah, right i'd blur those lines exactly yeah. that that it not lose its its format right that because if they had sold it it most likely would have the most likely format it would have become would probably have been uh mexican music <laughs> top 40 top 40 uh, mexican hits yeah right it yeah. is the most likely format it would have taken on which would serve an audience let's not argue that, that that there's that that would be wrong or bad but certainly it would no longer serve the role that it had for nigh on 40 50 years um yes. and i think that i don't know what happened to the commercial classical station in san francisco matthew do you know yeah one well one of them kkhi which had been scott beach closed down and so um, it, it changed format, and it, I'm sure the, it just, the, the signal it, they, is still it, there. It, it got, 
it got sold. It got sold. I think when the Telecommunications Act made it much easier to buy and sell radio stations, and the owners, you know, had been struggling for years and years and years, basically holding on for dear life. And the owner finally said, you know, we can make some money finally, and they sold the radio station. So we're talking today on Radio Survivor, and we've sort of discussed the beginning, middle, and ending of the classical radio format. And, and kind of radio formats in a certain and, way. And the beginning, middle, and ending of smooth jazz radio formats. And I'm just wondering, like, what is, um, what is to be learned? Is there another radio format that we're just in the middle of that will end? And we predict that today at the end of the radio program? Or is there something else? Is there a bigger picture to discuss about the the notion of formats in general? Like, is that... Um, well, you know, I have always wanted community radio stations to pick up the slack in this regard. And there's a lot of potential, and that's the word that everybody always uses, a lot of potential for community radio stations to pick up the slack in this regard. But unfortunately, so many community radio stations in the United States are organized along what I call the single occupancy motel model of programming, in which basically, you know, you basically get a whole bunch of people to pile into the radio station. Uh, They all get their individual shows. They all do their individual shows. They often don't listen to each other. Um and um, they go out and that and, and you know and call it a day. And the radio station and there's and there's no clear sound. There's no clear. I don't want to use the word format, but there's no clear personality to the radio station. Although the people who run the radio station, whoever they are this week, will you know present it as a free form radio station or free speech radio station or whatever they're calling it at this point. They'll try to find some. organizing um, motto for the chaos. Um, But a lot of these radio stations um, uh, can't, you know, can't pick up the slack in this because of their internal disorganization. Hmm. And that's always been a matter of um, a a personal disappointment to me. In Santa Cruz, there was a longtime non-commercial radio station which adopted an adult album alternative um, um, uh, format for a little while. You were a huge fan of the work and uh, covered and, and, it extensively on radio. And I, and I really, really loved that radio station. I really, really loved where it was going. But I have to say that I knew a lot of people around me in Santa Cruz who hated it, you know, couldn't understand why I liked it. Um, and, you know, and it tried to mix in some of the other programmers, um, the, some, some of the other public affairs programs, and that wasn't very successful. And basically, it couldn't raise enough money to keep going. And eventually, it went into Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And I think it was sold to a Christian right. radio station. Which one, is, one of the problems that they sort of started, uh, instead of starting on second base, they'd sort of started from negative five. They had a very yeah, limited amount they, of time to succeed. They, 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 basically, they basically did not have the time. Um, um, uh, to make it work. But there was also a lot of bad will towards the, um, you know, towards the project. Right. Isn't Nonetheless, and that's uh, also because in a way, like, there's no, there, instead of having 10 experimental public radio community stations available for every, every uh, market, I'll say, every town, there's only usually two. And so you well, fight the over them. Used to be only one, if any. Right. So, well, you know, the thing about, the thing about Santa Cruz is that Santa Cruz has a history of having a lot of really interesting radio stations. More than two. Yeah, more than two. Um, you know, there's still KZSC, which is um, um, uh, the, the college radio station. And I love that radio station. I listen to it all the time. And it has great shows in the morning, um, great music shows, which are, you know, and, 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 it, and it, to some degree, I think it really does succeed in, 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 in creating an identifiable um, sound. Um, less successful, but still great to listen to, is on um, the Cupertino radio station, um, KKUP, which has some wonderful music shows, particularly a show of, of acapella uh, that, that's just dedicated to acapella music. And I, I really love that oh, show. That of, breaks of, all of, the rules that you just yeah, mentioned at the yeah, top of I the know. show. Really, I mean, it really is a wonderful show. And it, um, and it really does break all the rules. Of, of 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 how music radio is supposed to be organized. Well, so um, I, you know, I want to jump in here on format because I don't think format is the death of radio. I, I know I, I go with you, Matthew, that I think that there is something about format that is useful to a listener to know what 
generally speaking, they might be hearing on a given signal. And Absolutely. To not force, well, and to not force them to keep a schedule and know that Tuesdays at 3 o'clock, they're going to hear ska uh, you know, versus heavy metal at the same time. I think format's a bad word just because if you only have f- five dominant formats right. in your city, that eliminates uh, 28 really great ideas that you'll never hear on right. the radio. Nobody's going to listen to FM radio on demand. Yeah. Right. Meaning, I mean, or, no, or, or, or rather, you mean no one's going to listen to FM radio on FM radio schedule. Yeah, on an FM radio schedule. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to listen to it the way – uh, you know the people here at, at, at you know and at, at, in my home my wife and I watch Netflix you know we're I mean it's just not going to happen and it's really frustrating right. you know that decades and decades and decades and decades later there are all these community radio stations around the United States that just don't get that I mean I, um, I tend to agree and there are stations that that do kind of get it in a way, right? Stations like KEXP in Seattle, which is basically an indie rock station. Sure, they have yeah. different shows, different, and and they, and 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 I think you can have variations, and you can have individual uh, identifiable shows, but there's a general sound. Or WFMU in Jersey City, New Jersey, yeah. which yes. is very eclectic, but in a way that that a listener can I think understand and approach in terms of being able to turn it on the same time every day during the week and, and not hear anything too far. I mean, it, it gets right. out there, but that's what the listener expects. It still has a lane. It's a collect, it's got an yeah. eclectic lane. It, and it's much more difficult uh, when you, when you, when you tune in and, 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 and there's less consistency. I love how often both of those stations do live music, by the way, speaking right. of the history of radio. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that, you know, as we have a proliferation of community radio and non-commercial radio with the emergence of low power FM, the opportunity to uh, refine a little bit more is there because part of that evolution of community radio on the positive side is if you had one station and just one station, there was so much culture and so many ideas left out of the rest of the dial that the only way you could possibly hope to cope and compensate was this sort of extreme atomization. But now where you might in a major metroplex be able to have the addition of four, five, or six additional non-commercial community-oriented stations, you have the opportunity for people to kind of pick a lane and not have to try and represent everything. So that the listener knows what to listen to, where, like where to go when they want. Yeah. And and look, when they does, want are there listeners who experience. like utter eclecticism yes are there stations that succeed with utter eclecticism yes and if your station is succeeding with an utterly eclectic format big thumbs up yeah like we're not i I don't want to tell anyone their station is wrong if their station is succeeding more often i hear from stations that are having great difficulty in fundraising and listener development because their listenership has faded away and the ability to obtain new listeners with an eclectic format is a very large uphill challenge. Yeah. Um, I agree with you completely, Paul, about this. And I've sort of, I've sort of more or less given up on, on, on getting up on this soapbox and, um, and telling it on telling it to people. But I just don't think that most community radio stations that allow the station to become basically a single occupancy motel for whatever, every, any, individual programmer wants to play you know it's just not going to succeed yeah, i mean not, in not fair, unless it, every it, one of those occupants uh is willing to just uh, pony up the the missing audience's uh, dollar right if, or, <laughs> that's, or, that's a I model mean, i mean right? you can have a big enough market i think where it can succeed or you can have a very strong connection to the community if every rather than every programmer ponying up the dollar if every programmer dedicates themselves to, to audience, audience development yeah. and not just sort of coming in and saying well these are my records and i go home kind of a cooler way of doing what i cynically just but said, goes yeah. out and 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 you know does dj nights and flyers and tells people about it that, that might succeed let, let me not you know I, I think that's there but i think this idea that you just show up and do your show and you go home and it's an, and it's good enough that someone's just going to eventually spin the dial and find your station. That is no longer sufficient. I think that it's true that it helps if there's more than a few non-commercial radio stations yeah. in a given metropolitan area. But there's really no substitute for leadership, and there's really no substitute for leadership that has power. And um, 
that gets us into all kinds of arcane discussions about governance that I think we can skip this time. But yeah. you basically you wrote you the basically, books. The books but you basically, but 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 I think the basic idea is that you have to have people um, who are in charge, and you have to let them be in charge. I know many programmers who do wonderful, wonderful radio shows um, on on, in, on community radio stations, and they all resent being governed. And they all resent being managed and they all resent, you know, any interference with what they choose um, to do with their radio station. And, you know, getting around that in a, you know, in a situation in which there are very few economic incentives for them to change, especially given the poverty of non-commercial radio. Um, um, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty it's a pretty daunting challenge. Well, we'll leave it at that. What do you think, dear listener? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. You can tweet at us. We're at Radio Survivor. We're also on Facebook where you can find us, Radio Survivor, and where we have a discussion community. Uh, You can join our community on Radio Survivor. Maybe we can foment a lively discussion about these ideas of format, non-commercial radio, commercial radio, smooth jazz, classical music. You pick it. We'd love to hear from you about it. And we are a listener and reader supported enterprise to learn more about how you can help us keep doing what we do. Look to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Matthew Lassar is so enjoyable to spend an hour with you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode, our sesquicentennial episode. Oh, my Lord. Thank you. That means 150. Sesquicentennial. I can't can't pronounce that word. You do such a good job of pronouncing that word, Paul. I'm so jealous. I practiced for an hour. I didn't tell anybody, but (laughs) I practiced for an hour. And And Eric, it's a great pleasure to talk to you, too. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. Good to see you. Thank you all for spending an hour with us, and we hope... You'll be listening to us next week. 